Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton, your host. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. We're looking at the gospel reading for Septuagesima, the first Sunday in pre-Lent. It comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. All right, in terms of context of pre-Lent, um, I was looking at Lindemann, and he says something that I kind of want to get your take on this. Uh, I kind of like it, but then there's something that's a little suspicious, um, at least initially in terms of how it all fits together. He says, you know, pre-Lent kind of started um, during the 6th century when <laughs> – at least some of the, the the propers when the Lombards were invading, and that's why uh, some of the prop, propers, especially like the, the collect as well as the um, introit, uh, are speaking about uh, great suffering and how we you know justly deserve punishment for our sins. And then he says the the second part of it kind of goes along with. You know, Lent was uh, kind of an increased time and devotion for catechesis for those who would be baptized uh, at the Easter Vigil and uh, be given new life through holy baptism. And so that pre-Lent and then Lent kind of constitute this time of uh, kind of a more vigorous focus on on teaching. Uh, all of that I'm fine with, but he's but he says. Pre-Lent then kind of gives us the program. Um, it lays it out in three Sundays as the program. And this is what I uh, kind of want your opinion on. He says, Septuagint, Septuagint, 
Jessima, brings us an invitation to become laborers in God's vineyard. Sexagesima presents the task that we are to perform, namely receive the, God, the, the word of God. And Quinquagesima states the purpose of our activity, namely uh, having our uh, blindness taken away and receive enlightenment from above. So he says, the Holy Gospels show three steps upward, call, instruction, and enlightenment. Um, so what's your take on that? What do you think? Um, well, I wasn't familiar with it. I mean, I, I liked it. I liked the ending there, call, instruction, and enlightenment. I mean, that's a nice, mm-hmm. that is, that does fit pretty well in, yeah. in some ways. I, it seems to me that, uh, though Septuagesima is, I mean, Septuagesima feels almost like it belongs in Passion Tide, in that it seems like such a strong call to repentance mm. and uh, a, a warning to um, to those to those who have had the gospel their whole lives, who have had the word of God their whole lives. Mm. So, I was thinking, I don't, I don't know if this is fair, but I, I just thought of this today as I was preparing for this. How how Septuagesima doesn't seem quite as catechetical. Um, mm. you know, because of the, not, not just because of the gospel, but also because of the, you know, this reading from Daniel nine, which is Daniel's big thing on repentance, which is, I think maybe the only place that Daniel kind of really talks about repentance. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, seeing that their suffering in Babylon is the, is the, uh, chastisement that they've received as a call back to, to the faith. And then the first Corinthians, nine also, you know, the whole thing about, uh, you know, all of our fathers died because they were unbelievers and they're examples for us. And then, you know, this, this harsh warning to the, uh, to those who worked in the vineyard all day, but don't get to stay there. Mm-hmm. Right. Th- those all seem like eschatological calls to repentance to me. Yeah. So, I mean, that is call, but, uh, you know, he's saying call to be laborers, I, I would almost want to put the spin a little bit more of calls not to lose the faith. Yeah. Well, calls right? to so remain laboring. Yeah, to remain laboring, right. Mm-hmm. This is this is not about bringing unbelievers in. Um, I mean, in a sense, because you have at the end, many are called and few are chosen. But yeah. but I think this is mostly about, and, and that's the context, I think, too, and actually in Matthew. Yeah. Because, well, anyway, we can get into that. So well, there, I, I don't know. The, I, I'd like to hear what you think. Um, it, there seems to be, you know, within the scriptures as you read them, you have this uh, um, uh, this kind of constant push and pull of um, the certainty that we receive, and yet also um, what a thin line it is. Right. That, so, does that make sense? Not as though it's uncertain, yeah, yeah. but that you look you know, a misstep could be catastrophic. Yeah. So on on the one hand, you have like God's doing all of this and he's working for us, uh, but uh, don't become complacent because this could, you could bring this all to ruin in, uh, in a a very short order. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, and we've seen it before, right? I mean, the best, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know what the future holds, but it's reasonable to expect that it holds more of the same, 
right? Yes. And what we've seen is that men's hearts fail them. Mm. And so you've got, you've got all those examples. I, I, you know, I was, uh, this fall, this past fall, I did some reading on the history of the formula of Concord and I had forgotten about this scene where the, the letter was misdirected. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember what all the details are, but the crypto Calvinists, that was an actual conspiracy right? where there was plotting and, and it was uncovered uh, partially in Wittenberg because the prince had gone along with the crypto Calvinists. He was fooled by their language right? and had actually punished the Orthodox. And then that, uh, one of the crypto Calvinists from somewhere else sent a letter to the chaplain who was a crypto Calvinist telling him how to deceive the elector's wife with Calvinist doctrine in order to further corrupt them. And yeah. it accidentally got delivered to the wrong guy. And then it all gets exposed, right? And it's just like, it's, it's hilarious. And it's just shocking that that could happen, mm-hmm. right? But in the history of Christianity, that has happened. In the history of Lutheranism, right. there have been wicked men who were willing to, I mean, this is the uh, 50th anniversary of the walkout. Right. Um, the Fort Wayne Symposia is going to be on that. I mean, you know, Tejan was willing to deceive and to lie. And, and many of the, that faculty were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, when, when asked point blank what they believed about certain things, they would, you know, in a kind of condescending way, they would be willing to pretend and to give the answers that we wanted to hear because they just thought we were just too stupid. To, I mean, but it was a deception nonetheless. I mean, so anyway, I, I think that uh, it, it's shocking when you look at that and think that's how precarious it is. And that's how men, even within the church, can become corrupted. Mm-hmm. And we, we know this at the time of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And then we see it even in the history of the, you know, the, fo- the time following the Reformation, and then even in our own recent history in the Missouri Synod. Yeah. So... Well, you definitely get the sense, at least for this particular Sunday in the church year, that there is an emphasis upon effort and toil, and then the promise that God makes to compensate that, even though it might not um, uh, rise to perhaps our expectations, but will probably be more than we even expect. Um, so in the context of discussing God's grace and his mercy, and then also his justice, um, cause that's, what's being called into question here, isn't it? Throughout the parable, his justice, mm-hmm. uh, do you think that we rightly understand justice as the opposite of mercy or should we rather consider justice as the opposite of capriciousness. Yeah, I think it's the latter, yeah. right? That um, right, justice and justice is not opposed to mercy, though I mean in some sense mercy can be a kind of injustice, right? I mean actually not punishing someone the way that he deserves is in some sense unjust, but there is also, you know, this idea of equity that comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is that there could be, it could be that uh, the appropriate thing to do in terms of actual discipline teaching is mercy. Yeah. 
I mean, you could, I mean, St. Paul says this about, right, in his admonition to fathers to not provoke their children. Right. And, and, you know, some of that is a, is a call to recognize that, you know, we shouldn't, uh, we should be careful that we're not trying to treat our, that we treat our children in ways that are appropriate and particularly uniquely appropriate to, to each of them because each of them is distinct. And, and, but that seems to indicate that even mercy is, uh, a kind of justice. Yeah. And in relation to a kind of standard. Whereas capriciousness yeah. has no standard whatsoever. It's just whimsical. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so so how do we miss... So if we're going through this text, how do we misunderstand the mercy of God as just a whimsy in our lives instead of seeing it as in relationship to a particular standard? I mean, he gives the standard, right? We made a deal. This was what I gave you what I said I was going to give you. Uh, and they expected more uh, because of these other things. How do we end up doing the same thing? How do we end up um, kind of forgetting the standard and expecting more? Well, I think we, I'm not sure that, it, it seems to me like the, you know, the, the obvious way that would be is that we somehow think we're going to be more rewarded or more honored either on earth or in heaven because of our good works. Mm. But it, it, it feels to me like most of the time what we're more prone to doing than that is to thinking that our sins don't matter and we can always slip in at the 11th hour. Right. That, that's, I mean, that seems like more of the problem of our age or my own personal problem. Um, maybe that's just because, you know, the, the whole idea of works righteousness has been so rightly and vehemently condemned among us that it's hard to kind of go there, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so, but I think we're, but I do think that we're prone to go the other direction. I mean, so, I mean, that again, you know, that is a historic error that has existed in the church though. Um, certainly. And, and maybe it is, maybe we're doing it unaware. I, you know, this is a, this parable is a warning for those who have had the word of God their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here what happens is they're annoyed that others have been made equal to them and get the same reward, even though they didn't do the work. Um, you know, I wonder if it is kind of a just taking the whole thing for granted. Also, you know, they, they despise the work. That's another thing because you know they compl- they say they have borne the burden and the mm-hmm. heat of the day, as though this was just slavery. Rather than you know being in the presence of God and and their brothers and sisters in Christ and receiving these things in joy, yeah. So they're really unbelievers, right? And they do, you know, they they do want to be judged by their works. I think that I, I think if- you've just hit the nail on the head in terms of where we are. Uh, we tend to, I think, make the error as you said, uh, you know, trying to get in the eleventh hour because we view the labor as burdensome. And too much, instead of actually a joyful thing to undertake and to be uh, and to live in. Yeah. So we so we are like those first people. We have the same attitude, which is yeah. The work is it's not worth it. The work yeah. is not worth and, it. And God will probably just reward us anyway, no matter whether we do it or not. So <laughs> right. even though we're here, we're just gonna you know we're not really making the effort. And 
well, because we don't really believe. Yeah, I mean, we do, we just don't really believe that he's good. We just don't want to be with him. We're like the older son in the parable of the of the uh, prodigal son, right? Yeah. I, I when do I get a party with my friends? Mm-hmm. You know, he he doesn't want to go in and eat the meal with his father. He wants to go be with his friends, and I think that's yeah. And yeah. it says something about what how they, as you said, view the vineyard owner. They view him yeah. as a paycheck, not as, <laughs> uh, not as being brought into the vineyard, or right. right. They don't view him as a father. They view him as a taskmaster. If you do right. this, then I will do that. Yeah, and someone that owes them, right? They're they're very entitled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, the only one who is out anything is the vineyard owner. Correct. Yeah, because because he chooses <laughs> to be generous. <laughs> Yeah, and it is great that it is his generosity that scandalizes him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they can't really stand about him. Even though it seems like what they don't like is that he's not generous enough to them. Yeah. The the truth is that's right, that's where this really turns out to be self-righteous because yeah, it's yeah. it's his actual generosity that they refuse because they don't think it's good enough. Mm-hmm. Right? The forgiveness of sins isn't enough. <laughs> I need to have I don't know. I need to be happy. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And if mm-hmm. he doesn't, then, right? What good is he? Yeah. So he's offering you, right, this this incredible thing. And uh, yeah, in fact, you have this. Uh, so if you go back, the context of the parable, I think, is is helpful. Yeah. Because, again, this is at the end. Right? He's on his way to Jerusalem when this happens. The rich young man had just come. So you just had this, this whole thing about, you know, keep the law and you'll go to heaven. And then Jesus tells the disciples, right, the whole, uh, it's impossible for a rich man to go to heaven, Mm -hmm. but what's impossible is possible with God. And then Peter says, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Yeah. And this parable is in response to that question. It's not the only response. First of all, he says, uh, they're going to have these thrones of glory and those, and then, um, Everyone who's left houses or brothers mm-hmm. and the like, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And this parable is meant to explain that. Yeah. And still really in the question, I mean, still really answering the question that Peter asks, what shall we have? Mm-hmm. Is there anything, you know, thinks, is there anything to some. what comes just before that interchange? where he says, let the children come to me. Oh, uh, good. Yeah. I have, so, yeah. so you have almost like this subtle despising of children and youth and um, that, that they would receive the same labor. You know, a kid can't, I have my kids help me, well, at least <laughs> my young kids, now my older kids are, are, are pretty good and handy. But w- if I have my you know youngest son help me, do do something. It's more work to have him help me than if I were just to do it. Right. And uh, so, is there a is there a sense in which, uh, at least within the thought of the day, that children were not a blessing as the Lord had taught them in the Old Testament, um, and uh, uh, not a great inheritance, but something that was just kind of like, well, you know, they're just not quite to our level. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly you have this idea 
in the Greek world that they're just not really human beings, mm. you know, um, mm. they're really not human beings until they can pull their weight in a sense. And we don't know if they're going to make it. Right. I mean, you know, so there is this kind of, um, this kind of resistance to getting too attached to them and so forth. But I mean, I think we've gone again, though, we've gone the opposite direction. I mean, we hate babies. We'll kill babies. That's fine. But when it comes to the ch- to children, we have, I mean, we're over the top in the kind of intensity of our parenting yeah. and the, uh, you know, how many sports do they have to be in and how many musical instruments and how many, I mean, the, 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 the kind of, uh, and they have to be supervised all the time, right? <laughs> they can't play outside by themselves. And I mean, there is an idolatry now of, of children that is off. I mean, it's bizarre because we'll kill them when they're babies, but then, but then when they're born, you know, it's like this competition that we have to, you know, do so much for them and, yeah. and pay so much attention to them. And then uh, the whole identity gets also caught up in that you know, that the children really become the idol. And there's all of this, uh, you know, the worst thing that could happen is that, is that my children don't like me. <laughs> well, I've, you know, I, I don't know if that it's become an idol in, in the sense that we are so focused on them that we want to do all this great stuff. Um, uh, I tend to to think of it more as we don't want to be around them, and so we want to put them in all these things, and then claim <laughs> that we're doing something for them. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. There's something off. I mean, the um, <laughs> maybe I mean, for a, sure a mixed bag there. <laughs> a mixed bag, but there is a. You're you're probably right in some ways, but it, it's is it really for them? I mean, children. You know, it's not that it's not that I don't think we should do things for them. Obviously, we should. That we're to make sacrifices for them, and they need you know education, and there's all this stuff. At the same time, you know, they don't need every toy that every other kid has, and they don't need to be in every sport or every activity that they might be. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, I think sometimes they could use a little less attention. Yeah, you know. So I, it's there. There's just. And maybe part of the problem is we just don't have enough children. So if you only have, you know, if you only have two children or one child or even mm-hmm. just three, yeah. um, you know, I and mean, if that's what God gives you, you know, God be praised and thank him for what he's given. But, uh, but I do think with, you know, a fewer number of children, you know, they're not, they're not learning to be leaders in the house. They're not picking up the kind of chores that they would if they had, you know, yeah. more siblings. And they do kind of get maybe, maybe too much attention from their parents in a sense. Mm. Could be. Oh, anyway. Anyway, the, you're, it's a good point that Jesus does say that uh, just before this, let the little children come to me. And that, that is a scandal to them, you know, that, it, I mean, we do have this still, I think, in our, this despising of children not just the babies, but this idea that children aren't really humans. I do think that that still comes up. I think there is something of that in us, in our flesh, because they don't seem like they're humans because we think of humans as primarily, you know, still in a sort of Aristotelian way as being rational and children aren't yet, Mm -hmm. you know, fully rational. So I think some of that goes on. I think that's, I do think that's behind the eighth grade confirmation first communion of the Missouri Synod. I don't think that's an arbitrary number that was picked out of a hat. I think it's very deliberate because I think that because it's the same age as a bar mitzvah. 
mm-hmm. and it has to do, it frankly has to do with puberty. Yeah. And, you know, when they're ready to go into the young adult section of the library and they're no longer children, then they can receive Holy Communion because then they're fully rational creatures who can appreciate it and understand mm-hmm. it. And that's what makes communion worthy. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's, I, I think there's still a lot of that in us, you know. I also think uh, the other thing that goes with that that I think is diabolical is how uh, how people how inconsistent then we are with that because if it's not if it's really ra- if it's not just puberty if it's actually rationality why is it that that we always end up communing children with Down syndrome at the exact same age as their peers right. <laughs> You know, and you know why? I mean, if this is all about rationality and intellect, so it's the whole thing is just much uglier than we than I think we've we've realized that uh, there's more at stake and there's more going on here um, with our anthropology that than it first appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in terms of text and translation, um, did you have anything in the foregoing? Um, reading just the probably uh, one thing at the a, end um instead of do you begrudge my generosity it's literally um is your eye evil because i am good yeah in verse 15 yeah so they're yeah, sad at the windfall of others they're they're envious right yeah they're envious and and yeah and they're actually you know it, it's uh they're not just begrudging him. They're actually wicked, right? Mm-hmm. They're actually, they're, they're viewing the world, you know, they're violating the eighth commandment. They're misjudging his motives, right? And assigning, you know, things to him that aren't accurate and refusing to see his goodness. Yeah. And, and they are chafing under the labor instead of seeing it yeah. as good. Like, the, you know, the way you, the way you do when you come home after a, a hard day of work and you're like, wow, I worked today. And that's good. Uh, yeah, they don't want that. They they want the, the the reward without any input. Right. Did the ESV have uh, many are called but fewer chosen, or did no, they drop that? They it does not have that. It just has. Yeah, that's so the a, last will be first and the first last. Yeah. So that's a critical text um, omission, and uh, that's a shame. Be- mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I can't judge these text critic things. So, but uh, many are called and but few are chosen is a perfect summary of what's going on in this parable, though. Mm-hmm. So, textually, that's worth pointing out. Yeah. I think that's a it's a good thing to have in there. If you're if you're going to read it from the ESV, you could at least maybe just cite that in your sermon because it is in other places in the Bible, even if it's not there. Mm-hmm. Anything with the hours or? Yeah, you know, I think there, I, I mean, of course, the, I, I think the point of the hours is to, is to show two things, right? That first of all, there is this extended call again and again, he's attempting to, you know, the call goes out, but there is also this inevitable reality that time is passing and this will not go on forever, mm. right? That, that the patience of the vineyard owner should not be mistaken as indifference to their behavior. And even that last rebuke, right, when he says, he finds them standing idle, why have you been standing here idle all day? 
and then they lie because no one hired us, right? Um, and I, I think we might have talked about this last year. Yeah. I, I think they were standing there all day and they ignored these other invitations. But maybe they, maybe they did come late for some legitimate reason um, to the marketplace and were looking for a job at the 11th hour. But that's not how I would read it. So they ignored the previous calls. Yeah, I think they've been standing there idle all day. And and when he comes and, and offers this employment, they just, they don't go. They don't go. They don't go. So, uh, and then he just commands them, go into the vineyard, whatever's right, you will receive. So I think that they're, you know, they're being hired at the 11th hour is that these are really bad people. So there could be a reason that beyond the fair treatment or the, the 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 same wage that the yeah the first would be upset yeah i mean they probably know these guys mm-hmm. and these guys have been pulling this stunt their whole lives these the the guys who went in first worked all day and then you know inevitably had to share some of what they had with these people who didn't have enough you know it's not like the uh you know the parable of the uh, ants and the grasshopper where we can just let the grasshopper starve, mm-hmm. right? Christians can't do that, even if it's the grasshopper's own stupid fault, right? You have to, and so there is this, and, and how much do we begrudge that, you know? It's, it's, it gets tiresome to keep taking care of and providing for your alcoholic sister, you know? Yeah. And, and, I'm not, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't set some boundaries with that, but at the same time, we do know that, you know, if she shows up on our doorstep bleeding, you know, we're, we're going to take, we're going to try to do something for her. Right. And that can, you know, I think that that, it, it's pretty easy to become resentful about that. And uh, so I, I expect that, you know, this had happened before. These are the same people who take advantage of us again and again. And now, uh, you know, we, we figured we're probably going to get stuck foot in part of their bill because, you know, it's our brother-in-law and the wife's going to make us. But now you're paying them and treating them as though they worked all day and you've made them equal to us. Okay. But anyway, the hours, I think, uh, show that time's passing and uh, it's creating a certain tension, right? The, the night cometh when no man can work. And it doesn't say, but presumably some of them don't still don't go into the vineyard. And then the other thing, of course, is going to be that those who are told to leave the vineyard, right, take what is yours and go, they're going to leave the vineyard in the dark at night. They, 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 are, they are casting themselves out into the outer darkness mm. and away from the community. Yeah. Well, that's a, a, a sad picture. Very sad. Mm-hmm. The last thing we ever want God to say to us is take what is yours <laughs> and go your way, right? Look, I don't want what is mine and I don't want to go my own way away from you, right? Uh, right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's terrible. I think it's almost worse than, you know, what he says to the five foolish virgins, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. You know, I never knew you. It's, I don't know. There's less culpability in a way. Take what is yours. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that all it, it also assumes, doesn't it, that every day we're working the hardest that we can. There what are the certain 
assumptions that go along with the mindset of those hired first? Yeah, I mean, I think they take it for granted. You know, they expect, yeah, they, they expect that uh, they'll get the denarius and they'll come back tomorrow and it'll just keep on going. And they know how the world works. They've figured it out, you know, and mm-hmm. and maybe they're not working hard all day. You know, maybe they've figured out how to slack off. And But, you know, they, they think they've got the system figured out. Every, everything about it is, they, they are totally, totally, confident in their own experience and common sense. Yeah. Right. They know, they know what the world's like. They know how it works. And that's why they, they're so dumbfounded by grace. Mm-hmm. What, what in the world is he doing? And, and so then, you know, they just apply it to their, their normal formula. If you get a denarius for working an hour, well, then if you work 12 hours, you ought to get 12 times as much, right? Right. That's how the world works. And then, I mean, so that's why they're, you know, I don't think that they're necessarily mad when he gives them a denarius. I think they're thinking, hey, if he gave that to them, think what we're going to get. <laughs> when they walk up there and get the same, that's why it's, it's so disappointing to them. And mm-hmm. of course- Right. I mean, I think, you know, that it's true too, that obviously, you know, their, their focus is on the wrong thing. I mean, you got all that stuff. They're not looking to the master or receiving the denarius as a gift. They're comparing themselves to other people. Yeah. And, you know, a lot, you know, so, I mean, there's all that going on too, but I, you know, it, it's sort of, they're driven by Dame reason, right? Yeah. So if you get one, is this kind of like, um, Naaman? And Elisha, hmm. you know, so how, he, how so? well, you know, he comes in and he's got all this entourage, you know, all these changes yeah. of clothes, all this gold and silver. And so, you know, the king sends him to Elisha and Elisha's like, well, just go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. He's like, well, you know, aren't the Farfar and Abana better waters than the Jordan? Uh, I came all this way and that's all you're going to do. And then his servant says, is this not a good word that he has spoken to you? Yeah. It's a, it's a expectation versus reality or um, expectation of, you know, what might be given instead of thankfulness for what actually is. Yeah. And I suppose it's, you know, in Naaman's defense, right? He's used to the, he's used to the ceremonies and the, um, pomp and circumstance of Eastern kingdoms and of, you know, astrologers, magicians and the like. And so Elisha doesn't act in a way that corresponds with that. Mm-hmm. So it, th- he has an expectation of, of what's appropriate for right. So for he has, profit. right. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, um, he, he's operating with a different standard, just like these people. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, I love the King's response. Who, who's the King? <laughs> Is it, I can't remember. I can't remember I, I should, either. But I love it. Like he's like, uh oh, this is a trick. This is a trap, right? <laughs> Who am I to which which uh, God to be able to do these things? Yeah, I mean that must have been terrifying. Uh, and I mean, I think I think again, you know that that's a fair expectation um, because he's he's looking at this and going right. He doesn't expect any kind of goodwill right or justice from you know from the east uh he's a you know he's a puppet king and uh yeah yeah i think that that's fair naaman's naaman's uh 
judging by his own experience in the world. And when he hears the word of God, it's disappointing to him because it isn't whatever, fancy yeah. enough or elaborate enough. And it, it also doesn't acknowledge the gifts that he's brought. Right. Right. Which, you know, might be part of it too. You know, he, uh, Naaman expects to pay for this service. Mm-hmm. And Elisha just, Elisha just doesn't, is just not interested in just kind of, it doesn't even seem to really, right? No, he doesn't, he doesn't take anything. And then his servant Gehazi goes and does get right, something. Right, goes back and gets and, it, right. And receives the wrath of Elijah. I mean, Elisha. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so um, anything further kind of on text translation, things to, to call out uh, before the hearers? I mean, I, it is, I always, or I don't know if always, but it's sometimes very nice to just notice that the kingdom of heaven is like a person, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's not that the kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard. It's, it's like a vineyard owner, right? So, I mean, the kingdom of God, we see that really, I think, the person of Jesus Christ in this, in, in a way that's somewhat subtle. And that's almost how all the parables go. Yeah. Well, because um, the kingdom of God as I think Gibbs points out time and time again, right, is about the reign of God. And yeah. so you're immediately talking about a person, not just a, not a place. It doesn't exclude right. a place, but the, the primary point is the how God reigns among us. Right. How he exercises his, his authority. Yeah. Right. How he's actually ruling, right? And yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so that's worth pointing out, I think. You, you've also got, you know, in verse 8, the steward thing. And that's kind of, you know, I mean, I'm sure that's a nod to the holy ministry, right? The, the vineyard owner doesn't actually distribute the wages. They go to the steward, and he gives them their wages. And he gives them their wages according to the instructions of the vineyard owner, like the steward probably doesn't like this either in his <laughs> fallen flesh, right? But you don't hear, he just does what he's told. These aren't his, these aren't his gifts. It's not his generosity. This isn't like the unjust steward taking credit for that, right? But so, so that's kind of a nice, I mean, something worth noting there too. So right? is the, the, the kingdom of God is, is the master there with the foreman? Yeah, I don't know. But but it's a mediate. The gifts are mediated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we could. This is you can use this against the enthusiasts. Is he? <laughs> the, he could be standing. I mean, let's see. They come when they receive it. They complain against the landowner, and he answers them like he mm-hmm. overhears it. Yeah. I mean, they're not talking to him because they're not they're not that good of people. But he's a, he knows what they're doing. He hears them and he he responds to them. Mm-hmm. He could be standing right there for sure. Yeah. So, is there a um, <laughs> the the Greek for grumble? There is the same Greek word used throughout the Old Testament wilderness wanderings of grumbling. Uh, is that is that our Lord's way of calling to his hearers' attention that this is them? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they perceived so. that he was speaking about them. <laughs> By using right. those kinds of words. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, where's the, the oh, it's 1 Corinthians 9. I mean, this is really kind of explicit in the epistle. Yeah. Right. Do you not know those who run a race, why, why they're doing it? But then you get um, in, in chapter 10 that goes through verse 4. Moreover, brethren, 
I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed up through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And then it stops there, but the next, so that that is, they were there from the beginning of the day, right? right? But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things become our examples. Uh, so yeah, I think absolutely this is a this is a nod to recognize the ingratitude um, of God's people, yeah, as as the constant pattern that has to be rebuked and broken uh, in us. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I mean, so that certainly the this is this is a parable against Israel in a sense, and against Peter, who says, you know, what will we get for the sacrifices we've made? But but certainly and importantly for us, this is a parable against anyone who was baptized as a baby. Oh yeah, and grew up and grew up with the Word of God. That that we should realize we've been. I mean. You know, I've been in the kingdom of God my, my whole life. I've, I have no awareness of being an unbeliever, mm-hmm. um, and I'm thank I thank God for that. Uh, at the same time, we should recognize that there could become right. There's there's dangers in that mm-hmm. that we have to be aware of. Yeah. In terms of fivefold use, uh, anything that you'd want to focus on with regard to doctrine and reputation, or training in righteousness and correction. Well, I think this is a good text to take up the crux theologram, and um, you know, so the, the whole question of why are some saved and not others, because because the answer is explicitly in the vineyard owner's mouth when he says, you know, uh, I wish to give to this man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Right. I mean, that is the answer. Now, Peeper makes a big stink that we don't answer this question, and he even says, "In my, I just read it, but I, I, I he says something like, uh, a Lutheran theologian would never try to answer this question." I think that's a little going too far. Um, I think we should try to answer it to some degree, mm. you know, within the nuances that Scripture has given us, and a lot of that answer has to do with the doctrine of election. And also the doctrine of the call and the efficacy of the word. And ultimately, I think, you know, the right answer is, is it's not satisfying fully to the intellect, but it is an answer. And I, I think what Pieper means is we tw- if we try to give an answer that is intellectually satisfying and logically um, uh, consistent, then we're going to either end up like the Calvinists saying we're going to deny universal grace, right? And and say that God da- chooses to damn some people to his glory, which which I find a blasphemous statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're either going to end up there if we're logically consistent, or uh, we will uh, we'll end up synergists who will say, well, the reason some are saved is because they're somehow better, right? They either they're clever enough to figure it out, or they take the opportunities when they're given, or they're just you know, morally better, superior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's true. If if we try to make the thing logically consistent and we don't bind ourselves to the limits of Holy Scripture, then trying to answer the question will be a problem. But I think to answer the question, as actually Pieper does, <laughs> is appropriate and even necessary that, that we actually set the limits, right? Mm-hmm. And 
you know, the kind of real answer in some ways to, well, why are some saved and not others is, is to say, uh, God gets to do what he wants and you don't get to, you don't get to peer into his hidden will, nor must he meet your standards and ideas about what is good or what is just, Mm -hmm. right? He can do what he wants with what is his. We don't deserve this any, any more than the people who are damned. So our response ought to be, thank you, right? We ought right. to be amazed. And we, I mean, this ought to bring us to our knees to praise God because, and, and what's so beautiful about it is that it is, it is actually so monergistic, right? That it mm-hmm. really is grace. His grace really is sincere. When, when he offers the call, when he goes out to the marketplace and, and, and offers a job to these people, he means it. Right, it's not a trick. It's not like I know some of you won't come, and I don't care because I, you know, I really actually I'm not wasteful. I wouldn't have jobs. You can't, I, whatever the Calvinist kind of thinking is, right? The the word of God is efficacious, and the Holy Spirit is attendant in His word, and He works through it. And the call goes out, and the fact that some people reject it, that's on them. Mm-hmm. The fact that we didn't is just. Like, I mean, I, I know this is going to be offensive, but it, in some ways, like, it's just pure luck, yeah. right? It's just like the, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's not luck, I know, but it's, there's no explanation for it except God's grace. We don't deserve to be here. How, how did we get in? Most mm-hmm. of the people hearing this, their ancestors were sacrificing babies to trees in Europe, you know? Uh, and, you know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. it's horrible. And, and here we are in the kingdom. Yeah. So, well, and, and this is where I think, you know, where we started with Lindemann talking about um, what the work is then, right? So yeah. so you get that in the parable of the sower in Sexagesima or Sexagesima, um, that there is a, a, a particular holding fast and and working with patience, um, right. uh, receiving that word. And and even still, you can't explain it completely, right? Right, right. And, and, and of course, the other thing, like you, you brought up the sort of tension that exists between right, God not smoldering or God not extinguishing the smoldering wick, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the, just the, the, the smallest mm-hmm. amount of faith is enough and uh, his grace is sufficient. And then on the other side, you know, how easily it seems like it can be lost in many cases. Yeah. I think there's a, a, a similar sort of uh, tension that has to sit between the reality that we do cooperate with God and with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, we cooperate with him in sanctification. Mm-hmm. And, and yet at the same time, that cooperation or our sanctification is not what causes grace to persevere. Right. Because that's the real temptation when you start talking sanctification language, which the Bible does, but but then we have to hold it in this tension that, yeah, well, our efforts and our cooperation with the Holy Spirit, right, that's not what causes grace to persevere because it's mm-hmm. grace and that comes from God. Well, and maybe this would be a point to, to go in on along with that Crook's theologium, which is... Uh, we constantly are trying to put God on our standards of operation, right? Where we want it to all make sense. We don't want any remainders. We don't want any pant legs hanging out of the 
the dresser drawers. Um, and, and so we try to devise a way in which it all works out and we can end up doing that, um, you know, along a spectrum of things, either the Calvinist or the Arminian or the gospel reductionist or, and, and, and the antinomians or the works righteousness people. Um, and we're really called just to confess and say what the Bible actually says and say it all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just as it's just as detrimental and deadly to faith to give false comfort to people in their sins as it is to teach works righteousness. Right. You know, and I think yeah. sometimes there's been this false idea amongst us that somehow like antinomianism is a lesser crime than legalism. Yeah. We're we're erring and, on the side of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, we're erring. Yeah, and that is just blasphemy. Yeah. Because right, I mean that's just it is because God's word is true and is accurate and we have no freedom to err on one side or the other. Yeah. And uh, if you undermine God's word at any point, you undermine all of it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this is why we care about false doctrine so much. Yeah. Because if it isn't actually, in the end, Christological, if it doesn't actually connect to all this, it, it isn't really doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's just trivia. I mean, if we're, if, we're arguing, if, if we're arguing about the numbering of the chapters, okay, mm-hmm. you know, that's just legalism. That's not mm-hmm. doctrine. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of trivia in a sense. Have you ever, when you've preached uh, this parable, and then even I'll probably ask you the same thing next time when we go through the sower and the seed and the soils, have you ever just asked them, like, when you hear this, who do you think you are? Like, where do you see yourself oh, yeah. residing? Same thing, I suppose, with the tax collector and the Pharisee. Yeah. Um, is that a, a way to approach this and then to say, well, if you see yourself as this per- person, here's what the Bible says. If you see yourself as this one, uh, here's what the Bible I usually, has to say. I usually do that. My, my kind of modus operandi is to say, well, you think you're the hero in this story. Hmm. But you're, you know, so we hear that the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple, right? And I think the Christians naturally and rightly identify with the tax collector. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think it's hard for us to see that we're that we're guilty of being the Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in this parable, I think that uh even people who were baptized as babies and have lived their whole lives, I think they 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 go to the heroes. They oh of course yeah. we're the people that came in by grace at the end. And but I, even I mean that the, is even that, like even with the tax collector we think of them as the hero, but they're not the hero. God is the right. hero. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> that happens too. The, yeah, the master of the house is, uh, of the vineyard is the hero. Yeah. So we see the like the good and the baddies. <laughs> Are we the baddies? Right. Uh, <laughs> our, our insignia is a skull. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so you so you'll put it in those terms, like you th- you see yourself as the good guy. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think we even do it. I think we uh, in like the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? We're going to go with the tax collector, but I think a lot of times we even go with Jesus, right? I mean, mm. we think. I mean, and I don't know. It's that's an interesting thing. I, I don't want people to. 
I think it's it's right in some ways that we that we identify you know with the good people or the hero of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, when our oldest son was was little, he would never be the bad guy. He could not. Did I, did I ever tell you that? No, you didn't. So, like, if you're you're playing some game, you know, whatever it is, you know, cops and robbers, it doesn't matter. He he could not be the robber. He could not imagine himself in that role. And uh, of course, I would try to, you know, it, it was sort of it was sort of inappropriate because he always had to be the, you know. And so I would like, okay, well, it's your turn, you know, to be the to be the robber or whatever. And so he'd be like. Okay, I'll be the robber, but you know the robber is actually the guy that saves everybody, and you know it was, <laughs> he just was incapable of kind of not seeing <laughs> seeing himself as good. So I don't know. There, I'm glad he he wasn't you know wanting to be a murderous beast, but I think there is something in that that we we identify kind of too quick because we know who the I mean, look, when we hear this parable, we've heard it our whole lives, mm-hmm. and we know that the people that worked all day and expect more and who don't want others to be equal to them, we know, we know that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And it is wrong, but I, I think then because of that, we're, we're required to have the sort of intellectual and spiritual discipline to step back and allow ourselves to see how, in fact, we are like them mm-hmm. and we have violated these things. And this does apply to how we've lived our lives and how we've thought about God and how we've thought about our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might repent and be conformed to the word of God. Yeah. There is a sense because every time um, that we do recognize we are like them, even though we don't want to be, because every time yeah, we get to, <laughs> every time we get to this parable or other things from the old Testament in the wilderness wanderings uh, and, you know, the people of Israel are chastised for crying out and complaining that there's no food or water or anything. They're like, but isn't that right? Shouldn't they do that? Shouldn't, uh, isn't that wrong of that? So, so they do, they do have that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you one time in the church here when I think one of the most effective things, uh, you know, kind of, rhetorically is in John's gospel in Holy Week, you know, when you read this account of the institution of the Lord's Supper, and when they're saying, is it I, right? One of you will betray me. And then is it I? And mm-hmm. that I, that seems to me that gets to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I it, yeah, because there is this, uh, wait a minute, am I going to be the one that does this? And because I, there is a recognition that I'm in that, in the disciples themselves, and then I think it re- we reflect it that, yeah, I am capable of that. Yeah, and well, I I don't want to do that. It may, maybe that's the 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 direction to go, isn't it? To talk about how we're all capable of that kind of mindset, and we're all capable of making that happen if we don't continue in that labor. Yeah, if we don't continue yeah, in the hearing, work. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we should talk about what the work is. De- we definitely have to. <laughs> I mean, I think, in, in, you know, it, it is hearing the word of God and receiving forgiveness and, and, and the like. Uh, it is also, though, you know, living within the order of the vineyard. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the vineyard is an orderly place. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, you're not in a rainforest, right? 
you're in a place that has been conformed to the will of God and has lines, you know, rows, and there's, mm-hmm. and then there's things that have to be done. You know, there has to be pruning, there has to be weeding, there has to be fertilizing, there has to be watering, there has to be, you know, uh, sowing and reaping, and and they have to be done at the right time, you know, mm-hmm. with the right tools. I mean, on and on you can go, but this is a this is a place of order, of industry. Uh, you know, for the sake of productivity. And then you have the great thing of what, what are, what are vineyards? What's the productivity of vineyards? You know, I love that this is, he's a, (laughs) yeah, wine, right? He's a vineyard owner. He's not a, uh, I don't know. uh, You know, he's not a, uh, uh, you know, it's not a button factory, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, this is the, the, the purpose of this, right? The, the labor in the kingdom of God is for the sake of joy. Yeah. And, you know, and to stay in the vineyard it means to not only get the denarius, but it also means to get the wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which gladdens men's hearts. Yeah, and there, so there is this. There is this uh, in this. In this, it's it's not toil. The word you used earlier, the labor in the vineyard is purposeful, mm-hmm. even when it's difficult. Yeah, right. That that we know that this is leading to wine. Well, and that is the theme throughout First Corinthians, right? All things are lawful, but not things are profitable. Not all things build up, are edifying. Yeah, good. All right. So um, anything in comfort and consolation? Is it just that he continues to call? Yeah, I mean, that there's that he continues to call, that there is a place in the vineyard for you, right? That your, lab, that your labor has, has meaning, that we have this hope, this expectation that it, it does lead to wine. And, you know, even now there's foretaste of that wine, you know, some wine is given at midday, you know, some wine is given at the evening meal. I mean, it's not the, you know, even if we're not in the full time of feasting just yet, uh, there's always that kind of preliminary goodness of Mm -hmm. being, being there and being part of a community. Yeah. You're not alone in this. Um, Is this an opportunity to talk about how the labor changes in various stages of life. Oh, that could be good. Yeah. So yeah. like, what would that look like for, you know, what is the labor for the, ch- the child, the, the 11th hour? What is the labor for the middle aged or for even those towards the end of their life who feel as though their labor is done? Right. Right. I mean, about, about all the child can do is go get a bucket of a bucket, right? You probably yeah. can't even, the bucket might be too heavy if it has water in it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but he can go get a bucket and then we can put grapes in it, or he can go get a bucket that we put the weeds in that won't, and he can throw it away. I mean, he can do a f- couple things. Mm-hmm. And then I mean, as you know, the, what the, what the, the physically strong, right? They're going to do that, you know, the kind of difficult labor in some ways, but those who are older and wiser are going to, are going to be those who recognize they're going to have wisdom about how to, what to do, yeah. right? When to put on the fertilizer, which branches to cut off. And I think those who are, who are old and infirm, um, you know, they, they might be, we maybe don't even need them to give their wisdom in some ways. Uh, but uh, they do get to just kind of enjoy being part of the family and, honored, right? Mm-hmm. And there could be wisdom from time to time that comes through. Uh, or there could be, 
you know, there can also be, I think, daycare that could be given. Mm. You know, they can, they can, they can be with the children and they can, you know, there, there is this, I don't think this is a false or an unbiblical idea of seeing old age as a second childhood, you know? What do you mean? That I think uh, there is this idea of, you know, the, a kind of time of rest and a time of playfulness and, you know, a, a time where you're not judged by the, uh, what you bring to the community in terms of contributing to the community in terms of labor, right? You're there gotcha. in some sense to, to be served, mm-hmm. right? Like children. I mean, children are, are different, obviously, but right. The children don't really contribute anything, but there is this hope that they will eventually. But with the elderly, there is this kind of recognition of their time is done. Now, I don't mean they don't ever have anything to offer because they obviously do, but it's not going to be in as in as active of a way. And I think that often, you know, uh, you know, just their words of encouragement and their kindness, you know, can kind of mean so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Uh, let's see. Do we do we get through all the fivefold use then? Pretty much. There's lots of doctrinal stuff in here. I think we touched on the major doctrines. Um, what are the other ones? Consulate. Yeah, I think we did. Okay. Oh, and of course, allegories. But, you know, it is an allegory. So you don't really need to allegorize it. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Right. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, Dave. <laughs>